is a co-founder, it's a human rights activist and co-founder of the Our Table um, initiative and a campaigner to end uh, direct provision in Ireland. And beside me is Caelan, who's a writer and journalist, uh, author of the success of the book, uh, Republic of Shame, uh, and which is shortlisted for the, um, uh, the non-fiction uh, book of the year 2019. Um, and you've also written for New, uh, New York Times Magazine and National Geographic, which also was involved in the making of this film, and uh, the Washington Post. Um, I think the first thing I'd like to do is to ask you your thoughts, just your first thoughts on the film, if that's okay. Starting with Gillian, thanks. Um, thank you very much. Um, thank you for the, the chance to see the film and to, to take part in discussing it with the audience. Um, I think anybody's thoughts must be um, just heartfelt sorrow and amazement uh, at uh, Dr. Amani's uh, team and her. Um, her, um, her sort of amazing inner calm that comes across in the film all the time, obviously struggling all the time, but still never never losing things, just, just always staying so calm in the face of such uh, relentless horror. Um, I guess with my interests, and um, I, I'm obviously very interested in the ways in which war is a, a phenomenon that is a gendered phenomenon and uh, it's very clear from how Dr. Amani talks about her experiences uh, that her, um, she's, her, her situation is a difficult one because of uh, the gendered expectations and norms that she lives within but how she manages to um, work through her uh, never losing her sense of uh, determination and dignity uh, to uh, um, to carry on working, and it's well known that war does reshape um, gender and how gender is lived in societies and, uh, and, and remakes uh, society and, and the gendering of society. I suppose just one last thing is that, uh, very notable at the last comments, she said, is there any space for justice? And I think that's a, a question for, uh, for the international community and for, for all of us. Um, the bombing of hospitals uh, is a violation of international humanitarian law. Um, in any circumstance, the, the direct bombing of civilians uh, as targets in war is also a violation of international humanitarian law. And it's, it, it's vital that such things, and chemical weapons attacks of course as well, so it's vital that such things are brought to international condemnation and attention and we find some ways of justice, although at the moment it's very hard to see, given that it looks like uh, the, the the war will end, I suppose, with a with a victory for one side. I, I'm not sure how international justice will ever uh, be served in the immediate aftermath. Um, I think that question of the space for justice hangs over us. I think um, uh, I'm a little bit emotional, and I think we can all agree here that it was an opportunity to come and watch the film, but I think it's tough. Um, she said um, when they lost their first patient, they said, they couldn't do anything for 
the person that they lost, but um, no one could do nothing for the people that they lost in the hospital. And as you're saying that up to now, the war is still going and the situation is, is still the same. And they can't, do the, they can't do anything for themselves. But I think in this room now, tonight, we've all watched um, and I think the world can do something. I know there are many ways of um, conflict resolutions, but um, as we've just seen in the film, this is not study. This is not uh, topics. This is a real lived experience of people as we are talking right now and children that they've not committed anything in this world but they come to to live and they didn't even make a choice of being Syrians. He asked me to speak about Syrians and because we had two brothers and I said I don't want to speak about Syrians because there were two brothers in there and I thought they would speak about themselves but it's tough and all of us here, we can do something. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to the IFI for having us and thank you all for being here today. I think it's so important that we watch documentaries like this and we hear the stories of people who are living through this conflict. Uh, it brought a lot back for me. Um, I was in Syria in 2017 um, in a hospital very close to eastern Ghouta. So in the scene where they're going along the highway, I, I think I, I actually recognize that highway. Uh, I was in a cancer hospital in Harasta, which is on the outskirts of Damascus. And um, when I was in that hospital, uh, speaking to children, patients who are undergoing chemotherapy in this hospital and their, their mothers had brought, it was three girls, um, I was reporting for the New York Times, and we ended up covering the story of these three young girls, all under 10 years old, who um, had come from different sides of the conflict to this one hospital. Um, one from Raqqa, which was the capital of ISIS, uh, one from Aleppo, which was besieged for a very long time and um, opposition areas completely uh, bombed um, to, you know, some of the, the rubble-strewn uh, scenes that you saw there. I've, I've seen those with my own eyes uh, in Aleppo. And another girl from Tartus, which was a uh, government area. And they'd come from all these different areas across the front lines to this one hospital to try and get treatment for their children. And when I was there in the hospital, I remember talking with one of the girls, Shahid, who since passed away, um, the walls were shaking. The whole walls of the hospital were shaking. And we could hear the planes going across to bomb um, the besieged neighborhoods very nearby. And so to see the other side, to see uh, what Dr. Um, Amani was going through, and the reality for people on the ground there, um, it just shows the human cost of, of that bombing, uh, which was going on while I was standing in that hospital. 
Um, and, you know, I actually was emailing back and forth with a doctor in Eastern Ghouta uh, while it was besieged who spoke about how the cancer rates there were increasing um, at a, a really shocking rate. And she linked that to the chemical attacks, but also just to the constant fear. And I think you see that so clearly in this documentary, the constant stress that people were under, the bombing that was just so relentless. And uh, parents would talk to me about um, a cancer of fears, was how they described it. And they really believed that the war was causing cancer um, in their children and that the war was sort of spreading in the bodies of their children. And actually in the documentary that she visits a patient who is receiving treatment for cancer. And I think it's a reminder that even when this bombing has stopped, obviously the siege has ended of, of Ghouta, but this will continue to impact lives. Uh, the trauma, the, um, the physical impact of this war will not end for, for generations. Um, and so this bombing of hospitals is also still continuing. So as you saw, many of these families fled or were bussed out of the area and sent to Idlib. Um, while reporting on this story, I spoke with patients traveling from Syria to Turkey, smuggling across the border to access chemotherapy. And one was a family um, and a young child who was getting chemo. And her dad is a doctor who travels still from Turkey to Idlib, a pediatrician who works in a hospital there. And as we all know, um, the hospitals in Idlib have been bombed relentlessly in the last, um, in, for years now, but there is a particular focus on it now. Um, and I think it's really important when you hear rhetoric that says that all the people in these areas are, are terrorists. We see very clearly in this documentary that there are everyday families, women and children and men who are just trying to survive and just trying to remain in their homes. So a very okay. powerful documentary. Thanks very much. One thing that struck me from the timeline of that documentary was it seemed to go from around summer 2017 to the end of the siege in April 2018. And in that time, I suppose this is um, a bugbear of mine, uh, we had politicians from Ireland visiting um, Damascus, Aleppo, and uh, they came back uh, calling for an end to the sanctions in, um, against the regime, EU sanctions. It was Claire Daly and Mick Wallace primarily. And they... They, Mick Wallace in the doll, it's on record, uh, it's on doll record, says there's two uh, remaining opposition areas um, and there's not a Syrian in either one of them. And he says they're Saudi jihadists and Chechens. You know, and again, I think that's something that's really um, so important to the Assad narrative to have us regard the people who are being killed as people who we despise, jihadists and murderers and head choppers and so on. And it really feeds into the narrative. I think it's, it's, quite, it's quite reckless language, you know. And I think that's something, I suppose, again, what, what, what I think this film brought across was that, um, uh, the, 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 like you were saying, the humanity of the, of the people who are there, normal, everyday people trying to live their lives. And in fact, medical people who are being targeted by the regime, and, and in some cases by HTS and other militia, because, simply because they are saving people. And this is an awful, this is one of the worst things journalists, um, doctors, anybody who's helping civil society over there is attacked. Uh, is it worth going into the, into the gender part of it more, or do you think that like, her, her position in the, in the, in the circumstances, circumstances that she was operating in 
Do, do you want to talk to is, is that would you like to talk about that a little more or is there anything that you think is worth highlighting? Um, Apart from what you said, Gillian, sorry. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I think um, the it was obvious from the not just the focus on Dr. Amani but the whole um, team that uh, you know that that, that uh, the women were very um, able to um, support one another and uh, find great resilience in uh, their communal uh, experience and um, working together but still um, under a lot of pressure around uh, conforming to what is expected of women to how they're expected to be. Um, having, and having said that, I think so. it's obvious as well that, that uh, her whole team respected her very strongly and uh, the, the surgeon and the other uh, men, the ambulance crews and, and so on, they were all uh, very willing and uh, able to listen to her and, and respond to what she, she requested and required. So um, in general, we know that war, um, as I said, uh, often does, one of the impacts of war is often that, that uh, women's lives are um, thrust into roles that have been denied them in um, peacetime in, civil, in civic uh, life um, and they, they become heads of household or they, they have to manage a family's survival or they have to take up new roles in, uh, and indeed sometimes also become uh, engaged in, in, in combat as well, we mustn't forget. But uh, war certainly uh, is very uh, transformative of societal life and particularly the kind of wars that we see nowadays. Syria is a horrific example of it, but uh, for the last couple of decades, people who write in our field in peace studies have been arguing that war has become more and more about uh, war being waged through abuse of civilians and through targeting of civilians. Uh, Mary Calder talks in, in our field, she talks about new wars, wars where uh, this, is, this is the kind of tactic of war um, to, to, to use violence, including sexual and gender-based violence, uh, as a means of, of warfare. Um, and. Not that that didn't happen in the past, but it's certainly become, as we've seen in the post-Cold War world, the kind of ways in which war is waged, as I'm sure uh, you've seen in your work as well. Yeah, I, I was very uh, unsurprised to see a very strong uh, and intelligent and driven young Syrian woman. I came across uh, similar women throughout reporting in Syria. As I said, uh, the three children whose stories I told, their mothers had brought them to this hospital uh, along very difficult journeys. I spoke to a number of mothers who traveled from Raqqa um, across fields. They, they talked about walking across fields uh, that they knew were strewn with mines with their children to get them out of Raqqa in order to get them treatment and came all the way to this hospital in Damascus, obviously, uh, people coming from opposition areas were very worried as well about being targeted, uh, having come from opposition areas, but they braved that to get treatment for their children. The doctors working in the hospital were women um, and themselves risked traveling uh, along a very dangerous road to get there. So, you know, I think it's a common narrative that we see that women in these areas are being subjugated or, or that, you know, they're sort of used in this narrative. Um, but I've come across so many women coming from opposition areas who are incredibly strong and independent and driven. And, you know, I think this story is just a testament to that.
Yeah. One thing I've uh, learned, um, I think, during the world time, like what we're talking about, gender-based, I think women are undermined. But uh, I've actually seen that women, they've played a huge role in um, conflict resolution in whatever part of the duty that they take during that time. And I feel like um, it has happened like that because women carries a different strength because the world itself, it's evolved from the woman. The woman is the one who looks after home, gives birth, so every person comes through the woman. So through that strength, um, it has carried like what we've seen with Dr. Amani, that you know, their resilience, uh, their energy around them, it, it just doesn't come from that passion of she's a doctor, but just because she's a woman, she carries a lot, and the strength can goes and goes and goes. And I, I also feel like, I think now in the world, we really have to understand to involve women more, because like there are many wars that they've been ended through women, like the war in, in Liberia. The war in Liberia was really hard that people saw an ending to the war, but women, they were the ones that come together and say, stop this nonsense, mm -hmm. and up to now, we don't have war in, in Liberia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I always feel like, uh, you know, I know there is a lot of political issues around the war in Syria, but you know, like if women like Dr. Amani can be very much involved, not just a doctor today, we don't know where she is, but if they can be involved in this story, like this story, particularly which I know there are many of the stories, it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. And this story can help, I hope so, bring an end to the war to Syria, because like what she said, the people that we saw there, they were children, that they aren't terrorists. Mm -hmm. they, they, they're mothers, that you can't call them terrorists. Mm -hmm. And it's just a shame, that's the language, because the language is, I think the language that's being portrayed in media and all of that, it's very dangerous, mm -hmm. but children are dying. Thanks, okay. Um, and it's funny how, like, the, the, how the warmongering is almost, Universally men, unfortunately, and it's awful to see it every time you see a, a council of the, the people involved, it's always men. Um, I think I'd like to go out to the floor, if that's okay, to get some. And, and we've, um, Cara, is, is Cara here? Cara. So Cara's a, a member of, our, a very active member of the Irish Series Solidarity Movement, Movement and a doctor, and I think can provide some very useful insights. Thanks, Cara. Yeah. Just a quick word to thank the IFI for hosting hosting this, and, um, and I, I wanted to take a minute to thank the Irish Syria Solidarity Movement and the core members: Michael Lenehan, Valerie Hughes, Eileen Boyle, and um, Leonie O'Dowd, just for the work they do in uh, keeping us all aware of, of what's going on. And to thank our wonderful panel here for uh, coming along this evening. So, as a junior doctor, well, I'm not obviously not junior now, 48. But um, I was a junior doctor in um, the UK and in Ireland. I worked a small amount in Zambia um, and Zimbabwe. And you'd really bitch and moan about staying up a few nights on end and not going, getting food. And then you see something like this, and it pales in comparison. Pales in comparison. So it's, um, it's a dark time for humanity um, when we see the amount of people that have been killed, who've drowned coming across the Mediterranean. It's a dark time. Um, we have new words for evil now, like Sadnaya, um, uh, a torture prison in Syria where thousands of people have been killed. 
And we've, we've new words for evil, like Bashar al-Assad. That is a word for evil. And I think today... denounce him as a doctor. Keep killing 600,000 people. He is not a doctor. Okay. So Dr. Amani gives us hope. Thank you very much. It's, it's the absolute savagery of, of a doctor, like I say, versus the absolute immense humanity of um, Dr. Manny that we saw there. Um, we have, so, so, so Brona, so another member of our organization, Brona is here, but Brona has done fantastic work, particularly in the area of family reunification. Brona, we don't have any roving mics, unfortunately. You'll have to come forward, sorry. But um, Brona's done amazing work, he's a long-time activist and one of the family members of the Irish Solidarity Movement. Mr. Castle, a few words, okay, thanks. Um, again, thank you to IFI for showing the film, thank you to the makers, thank you to our panellists, Julian, Ellie and Kayla, and to Michael and to everyone involved in the Irish Syrian Solidarity Movement. I think when you watch something uh, like that documentary, um, I think it is, we're all quite flabbergasted afterwards, there's maybe a feeling of, well, what can we do, and a feeling of hopelessness. Um, but actually the answer is that we certainly in Ireland absolutely can do something, you know. You saw the, some of the children and, and, you know, the doctors and the medical staff in the hospital, um, the issue coming up about evacuation, um, about just trying to get people out, the clip at the end, um, which was so uh, chilling um, just in relation to how many people uh, have died crossing the Mediterranean. Uh, trying to get from situations like Syria um, to countries where just they will be able uh, to carry on normal lives. And Ireland, uh, as a privileged country, as an EU member, has a huge responsibility in that regard. Um, and obviously with someone like Ellie here who's been such a staunch campaigner and from her own experience, of having come here, having come here as an asylum seeker, um, just that idea that Ireland should be providing refuge for anyone that has faced persecution, that has faced conflict. There is so much more we can do. In 2015, the Irish government uh, launched what was called the Irish Refugee Protection Program. Uh, was supposed to bring 4,000 people here in the space of two years. We're now in 2019 and uh, just over uh, 2,600 people have arrived. Um, because there were such delays in the rollout of the programme, um, they introduced uh, what was called uh, a IHAP, uh, Irish Humanitarian Assistance Programme, and this was supposed to enable people, uh, not just from Syria, but from a, a, well, a rather restricted list of 10 countries to bring family members here. Now, at the same time, in 2015, uh, the um, International Protection Act uh, was passed and that actually made the situation uh, for family reunification um, for people that have come here uh, as refugees um, much tougher and it really limited just to nuclear family members um, and the, the stress and the trauma um, for people who are here 
uh, who have had to flee their own country, have to go through that whole trauma and the process of, of arrival here. But then the worry about their family members um, has just been devastating. And, and sorry just to, to kind of like go on about this, but it just it can't be underestimated, the stress that puts people under. So in relation to this, I have scheme. Uh, there were two calls. Uh, there were supposed to be 530 places. Um, and the first call, just over, I think in total, just over 160 people were eventually brought here. But even, or sorry, were given permission to come here. But even uh, in the case of Syrians who were trying to get family members here, even if they got permission under that scheme, there was no really tangible assistance to try to get people out of areas like Idlib. They were expected to, you know, liaise with Damascus, you know, the, the very power that was, you know, bombing them and, uh, and just endangering them uh, completely. Turkey had closed its borders, so people are still stuck in Syria. They actually have permission to come here, and the government is doing very little about it. Um, in terms of also just the, the wider issue of family unification, um, one of the senators uh, in the uh, independent group in the Shannon, uh, Claire Kelleher and others, um, have taken a lot of initiative. Uh, they got a family unification bill passed through the Shannon, through the Dáil. Uh, basically, the government are holding it up on a money message, and that would kind of, you know, uh, sort of, I suppose, uh, revoke the, the former situation as existed from 1996, whereby there was not, you know, huge kind of free provisions for family reunification, but just a bit more discretion as to what family members uh, could be brought to Ireland. So. This is what we can do. Um, you have the pamphlet, uh, there are various actions which Mike will probably talk about as well. But just the final one, point three there, contacting the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, contacting David Stanton, who's the, um, the junior minister for uh, in the area of immigration uh, and integration. And one of the key issues in integration, how can you be integrated if you're so worried about your family members and the guilt that that causes people? And I'm also speaking from my own experience here, because my husband came here from Bosnia and went through a very, very similar um, unsuccessful um, attempt to reunify with a close family member and that is devastating that's lifelong consequences so I just please appeal to you to contact the Department of Justice um, tell them to get people here to get people that have given permission here to, to, to come here Give them support and get in getting here. There's also a 12-month limit on the duration of, um, of family unification. And that's running out for a lot of people and causing huge stress. Um, and also to remove or to, to grant that money message, to remove that blockage uh, that exists and uh, just actually bring our uh, family unification uh, legislation in line with what the UN and the, the Search Committee there last week uh, was recommended to do uh, by the Irish Human Rights uh, and Equalities Commission. So, Sergeant Bond, please take action. So, um, okay, so does, um, I'd like to go to the audience proper if anybody has any. Unfortunately, you would have to shout or else come to the mic, whichever you're most comfortable with. And um, if you have any questions that you have for the panellists, you're more than glad to take them. There's one thing I'd like to read. There's a report just came out about the situation in Ghouta right now after the, the re, um, capture by the regime and talks about life in, in Ghouta now. So this is just some, some of the points that are raids on homes and forced disappearances carried out by regime, regime intelligence forces are common. 
with numerous reports of adults and children being kidnapped by security forces. Uh, checkpoints. Um, the regime and its security apparatus have established at least 88 checkpoints in East Ghouta and residents report cons cons constant harassment and summary detainments. Then absence of basic services, there's only 10% of Ghouta has, has property, uh, proper sewage, 55% um, have access to electricity, drinking water and so on. Schools and hospitals, many East Ghouta residents lack access to education and health facilities, only 6% of children have access to schools. Uh, the economy is, is absolutely devastated. Property. The, the, the regime has taken property of people who they detained, and uh, and they can expect never to see that again. And spying. The, the regime. The, this is what Syria was almost notorious for. Was its a uh, very pervasive um, intelligence uh, gathering network that's going on in, in intense um, extent in, in Ghouta at the moment. Does anybody have any questions, or does anybody like to, to say anything or comment on anything that they've seen tonight? Yeah, sorry. Somebody say no? Okay. Sorry, I'm sorry, we've got the lights in my eyes, sorry. Yes, please, sir. So that, that lady there, sorry. Yes, if you, if you, yes, please. It's, it's, um, we can hear you well. It's, it's not too profound, but I just read the uh, film review of this film in the Irish Times today by Tara Brady, who's obviously one of the Irish Times top. And I thought the review was disgraceful. Um, and I don't know if anybody feels like writing to the Irish Times about it. She, she treated it as a cinematic experience and um, criticised the film for not showing the backstory of the children or for the. She said it was a chaotic film. And she just didn't get the point of the film at all. And I think it's a film that a lot of people should see. And I just thought the, the review of it was so off. Can I just say that's completely in keeping with the Irish Times so far in this. They have a the Middle East correspondent woman called Michael Jansen, and she's atrocious. She's just so toxic. She she portrays all the opposition in Syria as jihadists and calls Assad a bulwark bulwark against um, uh, Islamic fundamentalism. I mean it's pretty 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 bad stuff. But uh, if any comments on uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there, I, I don't know, the Irish Times, I, I understand there's a lot of criticism. Sally Hayden does incredible work yeah, for sorry, sorry, the Irish Times, and actually I was reporting on Syria for the Irish Times for quite a bit, and reported on, on aerial bombardment of, of Azaz and, and, you know, the uh, situation for refugees in Turkey and in Lebanon. So. You know, I think the problem in the media is that there has been a huge amount of fatigue around Syria, but it's so important to realize that this is an ongoing issue. I think there's a lot of rhetoric around the war being over, and for that reason, uh, people seeking asylum being sent back, or they're, they're not being in need to offer refuge to people anymore, but, you know, Idlib is still under attack. There are people who will never be able to return because of their role, in the opposition because they took part in protests or just because they've come from opposition areas. Also, if they fled through Turkey, that can often be a red flag um, if they ever return. So there are arbitrary arrests and interrogations in Syria still for people returning. Um, so I think it's very important, not just for the people who are there, but for the people who really feel they can never return mm -hmm. and the need to, to offer support. Okay, thanks. Okay. 
So I'm afraid we have to wrap up. Um, we do have these posters. We've done this at previous events like this at films, particularly where we ask everyone to hold up. So we have these posters that say stop Idlib or stop bombing in hospitals and so on. One of the things that's quite shocking about this is that the UN gives the coordinates of the hospitals to Russia to help them avoid hitting the hospitals even though they're bombing everywhere around them. But they use them specifically to target the hospitals. Oh yeah, but, 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 I, I know it's a big ask, would people mind coming together, if we'd, we'd all come together please, towards the front, is that okay, to hold up those posters, if you don't mind doing this, it's, I, I, not everybody, it's, it's just an ask, nobody has to feel obliged, but uh, there's kind of, it's very important to mention that the Assad regime has been using barrel bombs in these areas for a long time, which are totally indiscriminate, and just drop them somewhere where there's residential uh, areas, but the precision bombs have been very much the preserve of the Russian military, and they're the ones they use. And, and even when in Aleppo, when hospitals were buried down, layers below ground, they used bunker buster bombs so that they could have full effect. contact the media, highlight the fact that this has not been covered, the war is still going on and people are being massacred on a daily basis. And, um, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks, yeah, thanks, yeah, thank you very much.